0: <clears throat> All right, Ben. What to ask and look for when finding a dev shop or software developers? Um,
1: really, the first thing is you want to find somebody who is experienced doing what you're wanting to do. Um, a trap that a lot of developers fall into when they first get started is they want to do everything. And I mean, I did this when I was first starting out. It was, I was a generalist. I wanted to learn a little bit of everything and be everywhere and be the smartest person ever. And the problem with that is when you're looking to put a nail in the wall, you want a hammer, not a Swiss Army knife. And so a lot of developers will say, sure, I can do that and have zero experience doing it. Um, You and I have done a few iOS apps. when you went to do your first one, how much crap did you run into with all the red tape with Apple that if you had no experience with iOS, you would not have planned for?
0: Oh, so much. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like just certificates and things like that.
1: Yeah. And it's a lot better right now, but in the past, their review process for your apps, it could take two weeks to get a review through. Like, It was, there were a lot of periods of time where it was just flat out ridiculous.
0: Well, even today though, right? It's usually pretty fast. Yeah. But that's not guaranteed. Oh no. And
1: they can still reject your app for stupid stuff. I, for one of my clients, I had them reject their app three times in a row because the testers were putting in the password wrong. They were like, your login credentials don't work. We can't get into the app to test anything not happening rejected. And finally I recorded a video and I was like, look, here is the exact password. And in the video that they provided back every time, the password field was shorter than what the password was. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, come on.
0: Life is hard.
1: It is. It's hard to put in passwords. But um my point is you want somebody who knows all of those struggles and what you're going to run into, and more importantly, how to prevent them. Mm-hmm. Because if there's one thing that will kill a software project and ruin deadlines, it's those unexpected hiccups. And I mean, I used iOS as an example because we're the most experienced doing iOS over Android, but the Play Store has some of the same problems. And like over time, they've been moving more towards. Doing the same kind of setup as, as Apple has, um, so really, you want to find somebody who knows how to navigate those treacherous waters. Um, that's probably the most important thing. For, you know those reasons and more. you want somebody who's skilled doing what you are wanting to do. And we've talked about scale before. It's a lot easier to build a scalable product. When you're familiar with the stack, familiar with its limitations, familiar with how everything is supposed to be working. Um, so the more experienced in that specific thing you can get, the better off you're going to be long
0: term. What if your project is so unique and you actually don't know of any like existing projects? How would you find a developer or someone that is talented enough to build your project?
1: That's a good question. I think the first step is if you're not a technical person yourself, you need to find a technical co-founder who can help you figure out kind of what you're looking for. Every project can be unique and there are a million ways to do anything, really. I mean, if I wanted to create a lot, let's, let's say I wanted to create a login page for some application for a web application. I could write it in JavaScript with a web framework like Svelte. I could use React, I could use Angular, I could use Meteor. There's a list of 900 million web frameworks. I could use Rust and generate a WebAssembly page. I could use C++, I could use C Sharp. I could use Elixir with Phoenix with their front end. Like, you know, the the list of possibilities is endless. Mm -hmm. You want somebody, who can definitively say, hey, because these reasons, this is probably the stack that we're going for. And when we were building Perfect Form, when we were first discussing it, neither of us had touched Elixir before, but you had been getting, Jack had been recommending Elixir to you over and over and over again and telling you how amazing it was. And so we decided, you know what, before we get started, We could use Swift for our backend. We could use Node.js. We could use C Sharp. Um, Why don't we investigate all these possibilities and we'll figure out what our best option is and why. And after we played around with Elixir for a little bit, we were just like, okay, well, for what we're doing, this is it. Mm -hmm. This is what we need to be doing. Here's a list of reasons why. And that's kind of the first step is figuring out what you are looking for so again if you're not technical find a technical co-founder um because just going on the internet and searching i need to make an app is gonna give you very yeah
0: you're probably not gonna get what you want
1: yeah probably not like i can i can almost guarantee you what's gonna happen is somebody's gonna say you want to use node.js which sometimes you do that i mean it's a popular technology. A lot of people use it for their backends, and they use it for a reason. And I mean, half the time, I think the reason is it's JavaScript, and they they know JavaScript.
0: Right. I mean, we were close to just going with what we were familiar with and loved yeah. too before we made the jump to Elixir.
1: Yep. Um, but that's not always the best answer. Right. Um, so yeah, find somebody who can help you navigate that. <clears throat> and another thing that you can do is go and talk to different developers or different dev shops and kind of get their opinions. Um, There is nothing ever wrong with shopping around before you settle on a developer or dev shop to do a project for you. Um, And I mean, depending on the size, you might want to pick a solo dev over a dev shop or vice versa. Um, But the one thing you should never do is allow whoever you're talking to to pressure you into just going with them because they're smart or they're the best or whatever. Um, honestly, I think it's it's just like shopping for anything else and it's kind of like dating.
0: You know? Yeah, I was just gonna say, it's like marriage. You wanna be really careful. Yeah. You don't wanna rush into, because it's a, it's a long-term commitment if it mm-hmm. works out, right? Yep. And you want it to work out because there's a good chance if you leave or in the early stages, You're going to leave without a project and have to start over.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if you're a quarter to halfway through your project, there's a good chance if you find somebody else and you leave that partnership, then whoever inherits that code base, programmers are typically very proud people. And a lot of times when a programmer looks at somebody else's work, they'll just be like, I don't understand what's going on here. Like this person mm-hmm. was stupid. And it's not necessarily that that person was stupid. It's just differences in ways of thinking and differences in opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though programming is a very technical thing, like it's a skill, it's highly technical, it's a lot of knowledge work, it's also highly creative. And it's like taking a piece of artwork that you have somebody working on and saying, you know what, I don't like the background in this, so I'm going to take it to another artist and have them like pick up where you left off. They're going to look at it and be like, I, I'm going to have a bad time trying to work with you. Like, They're going to want to start over. They're going to want to build things up the way that they're familiar with it, using their particular style of doing things, and it may even involve a whole different stack. So before you get involved, long-term with a developer or with a dev shop, you wanna make sure that it's gonna work for everybody involved, and you wanna make sure that you are sure about this decision, because you, know, you don't wanna waste all that time and all those resources.
0: Right. Um, so you're at this stage, right? You're shopping. How do you know if you can get away with just a single developer to do your work, like contract out or even bring them in as an employee? versus hiring multiple developers or a dev shop? Like, how do you know what you need?
1: Typically, it'll just come down to the project size. Like, if you're looking for a quick prototype, um, here's an MVP, or I want a website, and that's it. Or I want an iOS app, and really, it's just gonna do this one thing, and it's fairly simple. then a solo dev will totally be able to do that.
0: So like prototype, proof of concept kind of thing. Yeah. Maybe not too much heavy lifting on a back end, but a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you go with a full stack developer, then you can still have back end stuff. It, it's really all about balance.
0: Yeah. Like, can you explain what what a full stack developer is again? I know we yeah. touched on it previously, but
1: Yeah, for sure. So you got the front end, which is the client side, it's what you interact with when you open an app or open a website. Um, it's pretty face to everything. The back end is the part that does all the heavy lifting. Um, it's storing all your data in the cloud. It's login APIs and points, the whole nine yards. It's where the app is getting its data from. Like you open up Netflix and you've got, okay, here's my login screen with my boxes with avatars in it for each of these users under my account. That is the front end showing you what the back end says. Hey, these are the users associated to this account. You click on it, you go to that home screen, you get a whole slew of videos, of shows to go watch. And that's the back end saying, here's the data on all of these shows. Here are thumbnail images, here's a preview video, URL, all of that stuff. And the front end translates that and says, okay, well, here's all this information. I'm going to decide how to display it. Okay. A front-end dev will be taking care of that. Back-end dev takes care of all the data side. Um, And a full-stack developer is like the middle ground between them. Um, They can do both. Um, They generally aren't as specialized doing back-end or front-end as a dedicated front-end or back-end dev. But they are aware of how everything works, aware of how everything flows, and they can get by doing both. And, I mean, that's what I am. Right. Like, i do a lot of front end stuff in our partnership but everywhere else i'm just a full stack dev and i'm doing server work i'm doing client side work
0: so how likely is it um to be able to find a dev that can do native mobile apps as well like a full stack with mobile apps you think that's a hard find you can find them they
1: exist um but you're getting into that generalist territory where like if I I have to make decisions of exclusion all the time, of I'm not going to learn how to do this thing because I need to spend my resources, my time, learning and, be- and improving my craft, doing these other things I already know how to do. Once you get into that territory of you've got a full stack dev, who does backends, does web front ends, and I do iOS apps, and I do Android apps, and I do video games, and I do like you're diluting that skill set. Mm-hmm. And that's a trap that a lot of developers fall into early on, and some of them continue that for their whole careers, of thinking that they are just the special snowflake that can know everything and that they are not bound by the laws of reality mm-hmm. which is you've got x number of hours um and greg mccone is an author that i really like i follow him and he has a couple of books out there um the first one that he wrote was called essentialism the disciplined pursuit of less and he just released a new book six months ago to a year ago Called effortless and both of those kind of tie into each other and they have this really amazing diagram in them that illustrates this point really really well. So it's basically just a circle and then you've got one circle that has about 20 arrows coming off of it and the point is those 20 arrows only go like an inch away from the circle. And then you have another circle that has one arrow And it's more like 20 inches, like I'm, the proportions there aren't right because it's all on one piece of paper, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, and the general, the driving fact behind that is you only have so much time, mental energy, ability to focus. If you're trying to focus on 20 different things, none of them are going to get very far. And it's the same with skills as a developer. Like, I do full stack out of necessity. But if I were to take that same amount of focus and just say, okay, well, the only thing I am doing is making front ends with Svelte or making games, making games in Godot in specific or Unreal Engine in specific, then my skill set in that thing would improve exponentially over where it's at right now. And a lot of developers think, well, I'm just this amazing human being that has surpassed mortality. And I can have all of my arrows go that far. And it just, it doesn't work.
0: That was me in the beginning stages of learning. I wanted to learn everything, right?
1: It's a phase that every developer goes through. And most developers realize somewhere down the line, like... My I have a little brother that started developing and he's working for a dev shop over on the other side of Idaho. And he was going through that phase when he first started learning how to code. And the advice that I gave him was, "Okay, cool. You're in this stage where you are basically having a sample platter and you can dip your toes in a little bit of everything. Figure out what you really like and then order that in bulk. Mm -hmm. Focus on it and just go down that path, ignore everything. Yeah. Because eventually they come to a point where they're like, I, I can't keep this up. And I hit that point a few years ago of, you know, I used C Sharp for Unity. I used C++ for Unreal Engine. I was learning Rust. Um, I was using JavaScript for Angular, for React. I was learning Vue. And there was just this whole array of languages that I was trying to keep up on. And I was trying to learn to be better with iOS and I was starting to learn Android and I just looked at it and I was like, this is too much crap.
0: Yeah, you hit a point where you start to shut down or burn out, whatever you wanna call it. And it's, cause dude, a few years ago, we were doing everything, right? iOS, blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, game dev, end development, mostly Node.js back then. Yeah. And then just even learning how like Mongo database works versus SQL and like knowing all these different things. Your brain is everywhere mm-hmm. and you can't even focus on your current project.
1: Well, and you go to... <laughs> You go to switch projects and context switching is a pain to begin with.
0: Oh, I had to Google syntax (laughs) constantly because I couldn't remember. We have to switch languages.
1: Like I distinctly remember when we were doing DevSlope stuff, there was a point where I was in C Sharp. I was working on a Unity course and I'm staring at my code and the compiler is throwing a fit saying, I don't understand what the heck you're trying to do. And it took me a solid 10 minutes of staring at it to realize I just wrote this whole page in Swift, like this isn't even C sharp. No wonder the compilers not, <laughs> not having it. Yeah. Like, so that's one of the things that you want to be wary of going back to the point uh, when you are looking at a solo dev is if you want a solo dev, if your project warrants it and it's really about balance, like-
0: Or the scale of the project, essentially.
1: Yeah. And well, it's a balance between the scale of the project and how fast you want it done Mm -hmm. like me as a solo dev i can do anything but it's going to take me longer than a dev shop who has a dedicated back-end person and a dedicated front-end person and a project manager and all of that stuff to help things really go Mm -hmm. versus i've got one person working on everything like,
0: yeah, when you specialize and do one thing daily, you get a lot of automation. Oh yeah. In your day, and if you're not automating, and if you're a developer listening to this, start Starting automating that. and writing scripts to make your life easier. That's one of the
1: things we really like about Elixir is it's really easy to write meta code. Yes you can basically have Elixir do half the work for you.
0: Yeah, like like you can write a script and have your whole project spun up with like user authorization mm -hmm. like already done. And yeah, boom, like you don't even need a skeleton project. Yep, (laughs) it's pretty sweet.
1: Um, So anyways, it's just about finding that balance. And if you are going with a solo dev and they claim to be doing everything, then either A, they're inexperienced because they're at the it's really that Dunning-Kruger Kruger curve that I've mentioned before um, of they're still on the high thinking they're amazing at everything, mm-hmm. and they haven't hit that realization of how much they don't know. Yeah. Um. So that's an indicator of I'm inexperienced or they are living in a false reality. <laughs> and that's not exactly what you want leading your project. Um, so, yeah. It's just about finding that balance and looking for red flags. Um, And I mean, on that note, how much experience do you think you should be looking for, like, minimum when you're talking to a solo dev or a dev shop?
0: So I think a dev shop, I'm like, I'm assuming most people find dev shops through, like, referrals or, you know, somehow, like, you can see their portfolio, previous work, like, you know, they're capable of at least finishing projects and building stuff. Right? Yeah.
1: Outside of LinkedIn, I don't usually see a lot of advertisements for Let Us Build Your App. Right.
0: Like, it's not the easiest to find, but I feel like when you find a shop, you know, as long as you, I mean, if it's a small team, like look at us hired gun apps, it's yeah. just you and I right now as the developers. So just know where they came from, know their past. And yeah. as long as they have a decent work, like, they have a good work experience and they've worked on cool projects. Like they're probably pretty capable of building your solution. Um, if you're looking for a single dev just to maybe make a prototype or prove a concept, you probably want like a senior level dev because no one's doing code reviews on them. So if you just hired a junior dev that doesn't really know what they're doing, you could have a lot of really sloppy code. Like you learn a lot when other people look at your code yeah
1: so yeah, sure. if you don't have
0: enough experience where you've gotten torn apart and your feelings hurt in a code review um you you need to experience that i think so yeah. i would say like senior level and time in the saddle doesn't necessarily mean senior level either. oh
1: yeah definitely not so
0: it's a hard it's a hard line so i would just pass experience like see what they've worked on um And if you don't have a technical background that, like we've stressed this before, have an advisor that has a technical background or a a co-founder. Yeah. And I mean, you can definitely
1: go with junior to mid-level devs, but just know what you're expecting when you walk in. Yeah, it might
0: work, but just know that the code is probably not pretty. And once you start bringing on more experience, you're gonna be- They're
1: probably just gonna be like, you're gonna start over.
0: (laughs) You're going to start over and when you hear that, don't be upset because you probably need to.
1: Yeah. I mean, we in the past, we've worked together on a project where they had a code base that was written by somebody that was straight out of college, like four years ish before we started working on it, three to four years, somewhere in there. Um, And they had spent the whole time trying to duct tape it and make it work when in reality, the smartest move they could have done was just trash it and start over. Like, we probably could have rewritten that entire app in six months' time. Mm -hmm. But they were just so invested in, but I already spent money on this code. And that was something that the product owner said to me when I recommended, hey, um, for this reason, this reason, and this reason, you need to just rewrite it. Like, let's just rewrite it. Let's fix all the problems that you have going on. We can address all of these issues, get you tests, all that stuff for proof. And the overriding factor was, I already paid for this code. And they weren't willing to see the writing on the wall. And eventually we left that project and other people walked in. And after the fact, talking to them, they came to the exact same realizations we did. And it was just this endless cycle because they... Didn't like hearing. Hey, it's probably best if you start over.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you get that attached to, like, at that point, it's a sunk cost. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter how much you spend. It's it's just like when you hire a dev shop that doesn't work out, and you know I've spent thirty thousand dollars on this dev shop doing work, and it's all crap. Like, it doesn't matter to the next people walking in how much you've already spent. Right, And really from like the product owner business side of things, it really doesn't matter how much you've already spent. Like you paid for what you got. And if it's horrible, it's just like when you buy cheap furniture from some store and it breaks. I, I don't typically walk into Ikea or Costco and go, hey, um, so I bought a couch from Walmart and it broke so can you guys cut me a deal?
0: Right, exactly.
1: Like, that's not how it works. And at a certain point, you gotta just realize, hey, this is a sunk cost. It's, I lost that money, let's move on.
0: Um, Another, this might be a little off subject, but if it is, we can just circle back. Um, A lot of people don't understand, like you have to look at software as kind of like a living entity. Mm-hmm. Like it you're always working on it. And the second oh, yeah. you stop, it's going to die. Yeah. Because APIs or other like third party services that you use are constantly changing and evolving.
1: Well, and they find like security flaws that yeah. have to get patched and all that stuff.
0: So don't think that you can build your MVP and then be good for 20 years. Because yeah. even like uh design changes, because you could design something a year ago and it no longer looks cool and hip. Yeah. A year later, you know. And if you want to stay current, you have to constantly be updating, doing facelifts and
1: Yeah, that's why most of a developer's life is just spent learning. Yeah. Like we are constantly learning because everything changes at such a rapid pace. And I mean like right now I'm not going to say names because yeah. stuff going on. But um there's a I just read an article yesterday about a secure identity provider who messed up and there's a major exploit where passwords are just getting displayed as plain text like when that happens with a library they are for sure going to patch it as soon as possible but if I was using a version of it that had that vulnerability i need to know about it and i need to know to upgrade i need to know how to fix it and so i got to keep on top of that stuff you can't just let it sit there and like even google with android apps they tend to um i'm wanting to say it's in their developer agreement but i was talking to a client about this the other day um and basically if your android app does not receive an update and i think it's like 18 months then Google will actually send you a warning and shut down your app and take it off the Play Store because they want you to be constantly updating. They want Mm -hmm. you to be upgrading to the newest versions of Android, upgrading libraries. They want to keep all their stuff secure, which is kind of funny given the Play Store, but whatever. Um, Well, I think
0: that actually makes it more important, right, because they have less restrictions and less is locked down on Android
1: yeah, well, and I mean, I'm not saying the apps, the iOS app store is perfect either, because there right. are plenty of exploits. But like nine times out of ten, if you've downloaded an app and there's a virus, it's usually on Android.
0: Right, for sure, hundred uh, percent.
1: But anyways, you just got to keep up on it, and the developers have to do that. Your app has to do that, and so that's that's an important part to look at when you're picking out a dev shop or a solo dev like when you're going through the process and interviewing people anyways is is this someone that i can see working with my product a year from
0: yes will they support it too yeah that's an important a of, question a lot of
1: dev shops will just wash do their a project. Hands. they're like all right we're done and walk away mm-hmm. and then you never hear from them again And the next person that comes and picks it up is just like, what in the world is this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you want to make sure whoever you go with is willing to support, right? And at least have some sort of system in place. So you know how much it would cost if you're like, hey, I have an emergency. Can you fix this for me? Yeah, for sure. Like, Will they stand by their work and maybe fix certain bugs just automatically because that's the promise they made you and you're agreement like have everything written up in a contract oh 100 percent. if a dev shop is not um, giving you a very detailed contract or proposal probably find someone that knows what they're doing because
1: it's enough to raise questions right like
0: so you want to know what their support looks like um what it's like to even get in contact with them after your initial projects completed yeah. Like if they ghost you and you never hear from them, that's not good. So you want to ask what their support
1: is yeah, or like, what it
0: is even capable of, right?
1: Yeah. Like when I'm working on a solo project, I'll have here's the feature that you're paying for. Here's everything outlined. Um and then if you want to meet with me about something, it's like a 48-hour, I think I I think in my contract it's a 48-hour window of you can schedule anything after 48 hours from now. And I'll meet with you for free. We'll talk about it. It's not a big deal. If it's an absolute emergency and you've got to talk to me right now, then there's a fee associated to that. But I make that very clear from the start. Mm -hmm. And like the only reason that exists is to avoid having a client calling me every five minutes Right. with, hey, uh, so I was thinking about this feature and maybe we change this button from blue to red. Yeah, is that like, a, that's, a, that's, not an that's
0: not an emergency. So, yeah. like, but so, to
1: them, they can sometimes be like, "Well, this is an emergency, though," and so that just helps protect me and honor my time where I'm trying to get stuff done for them and other clients. Yep. Um, but, like you were saying, I make that very clear from the start, and that expectations in there, and I can point to it on the thing that they signed and say, "It's right here at the top." Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I think just transparency with whoever you're doing work or business with is important. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I guess uh, we can get to wrapping this up. Are there any more like what, what else is an important flag? not a flag, but what's an important uh, detail to look for when hiring anybody? Um, I would say like, the first
1: thing to protect yourself and make sure that you're getting in, into a relationship with somebody that knows what they're doing is look for a portfolio. Like look for past work. Like you said, what cool projects have they worked on? You want to see that social proof of, Hey, they know what they're doing mm-hmm. because they've done this for X, Y, and Z. And even if they don't have like a strong individual portfolio, if they've got, here's some demo projects I made, or here's a project I've been involved in in the past, like, you can use that as some kind of gauge of, okay, well, they're not absolutely new to this. Um, There are a lot of people I've, we've both noticed a wave in the last six months or so of very, very junior devs. Like, I just graduated a boot camp, or I have three months of experience going well i'm gonna i'm gonna be a freelancer Mm -hmm. like not yet yeah
0: (laughs) yeah you're jumping Um, the gun um how do you once you hire somebody mm -hmm. how do you know what they're working on how do you track their progress um well everybody's gonna have their own system Mm -hmm. um but
1: that's one of the questions that you should be asking like, there's, there's a whole list of questions that you should be asking when you're going around shopping for dev shops. And one of them is, what kind of communication are we going to have? Like, what kind of structure do you have for syncing up, checking on project progress, all that stuff? Because nagging them every five minutes isn't going to help. Um, nagging them every hour isn't going to help. What is normal? Like, like what? Typically, Again, it depends on their structure. What a lot of people follow is Agile or a subgroup of that called Scrum, and they'll have a daily meeting where the product owner, so that's you if you own the app, is not present. Um, It's a dev meeting. It's there for the people working on the project, Um, but they can give like a quick update to the project manager or if it's a solo dev, they can send you a message and say, hey, this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Or you can keep track of it in task management software like Trello or ClickUp or something like that. Of, I've got tickets. This is where the ticket is. This is where I got to on it. Here's progress. Here's comments, whatever. But typically you can expect to hear from a dev every week or two on here's just a general update of where we're at. And with Agile and Scrum, you have... bi-weekly sprint review where you're in these sprints you're doing these are the tasks that I'm working on blah 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 and this is what I'm gonna get done in this period of time and then at the end of that you meet with the product owner and you say here's where we got to this is what got finished this is what didn't get finished and why and you kind of get that update as you go
0: okay so Um, like a good communication like obviously emails maybe a slack channel but like you're gonna get a detailed update most likely every like two weeks yeah and that is like a good standard to yeah expect.
1: that's like very
0: typical okay
1: um and if you're not if if you ask a dev shop hey what process do you have for syncing up and it's well i mean we'll email you sometimes yeah like that's a red flag right like flat out if they say, just give me the spec and I'll see you in six months. You also
0: shouldn't have to beg for an update. Oh, for you sure. You should just know when they're coming. Like yeah. at, like Hired Gun Apps, um, we'd probably give you know a weekly update, but we'll do our detailed every two weeks. Where yeah, we'll jump typically on do our,
1: like a weekly Slack message. Email, or email, yeah. However they want to be contacted. Mm-hmm. And we'll say, hey, this is where we're at this week. This is what we're working on this week. And then for those sprint reviews, we give a much more detailed demo. with demo, Yeah, and or like
0: a that. Zoom call so, and they actually see progress. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, or face-to-face. It depends on the location of yeah. our client.
1: Um, so, yeah, you want to know how they sync up. Um, you want to know, like, what their payment structure is, how they charge, whether they do hourly, feature-based, you know. a monthly stipend that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um so that's an important thing to ask for when you're going around doing dev shops because lots of people do it differently and everybody has a different opinion Mm -hmm. like for us we do feature based um that's what hired gun does that's what i do when i'm doing solo stuff can you
0: explain what that means
1: yeah so feature based like we'll give an estimate for here's the whole project so that you have that whole overarching picture of this is how much it's really going to cost me but feature-based billing is more about i'm delivering you a thing and it's a feature it's you know a login page or here's your home page or it's it's essentially taking the project in steps Mm -hmm. and then saying i'm charging you a flat fee for this step that way there's no surprises for the client it works for me because if if There's I no get over-billing
0: to, with yeah, like hourly yeah, or which can be a real problem. Or, like, yeah.
1: If you're doing, that's one of the reasons I switched to that is with hourly billing, if something goes wrong because I messed something up three weeks ago, mm-hmm. then I'm now charging for the work that I messed up and I'm charging for the work to fix it. And that's not fair to the client.
0: So 40 hours of work, which was probably estimated, right? Yeah. Could now be eighty. Could now be eighty. So you like, just doubled what the estimate yeah. was, and <laughs> and no I'm one's...
1: being rewarded for it because I'm making more, right?
0: And no one's happy except the developer.
1: Yeah, and so feature based billing helps prevent that, mm-hmm. and it gives the business, the product owner, the paying client, a clear picture of this is how much I'm paying, full stop. Yep. And you know the goal is always, hey, I'm going to hit my deadlines and I'm going to get this done on time. But if something goes wrong, other than having to wait a, bit, a little bit longer for it, the client isn't being punished for my inefficiency. Um, And so that's what feature-based billing is all about, is just I'm giving you deliverables at a set price, and it gives me and the client freedom for, if it's not working out, if for whatever reason... I can't handle the client's requests like I've got too much going on or something happens or, you know, a million different reasons. We can finish that feature and they have something that they can walk away with and have somebody else pick up on. And they're not bound to, well, you know, I screwed this up. And I keep using me like talking. I don't typically mess projects up like that. but. really just the developer, if it's not working, you can walk away from it with feature-based billing.
0: And it saves you a lot of On both sides. Like the product owner might not like the dev shop or the developer, right? Yeah. So you can separate at like two week increments or a month increment, whatever your feature-based like timeline is, and you still have a product when you're done, so.
1: Yeah. In my personal opinion, that's just the safest way for everyone involved to be happy with what they're doing. Right.
0: I think it's fair and everyone understands it. Yeah. And there's no, like, you don't have to prove where your time went if you just popped up with a 60 hour time cheat versus a 30 that you promised, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and like with developers, I can spend hours and hours trying to solve a problem. And the first thought that's popping in my head is not, hey, I need to go update my timesheet and cover everything that I just figured out. My first thought is I need to get away from my computer as fast as possible.
0: (laughs) To clear my head. (laughs) To clear my head.
1: Yeah. And so, like, you don't have to worry about that with feature-based billing. And really, at the end of the day, if I take 30 hours to do something or I take 60 hours to do something and you end up with the same product, what does it matter?
0: right you delivered um and the worth of that feature is still there all right no i think that's a a great note to end on too yeah is there anything else um no i think that's basically it all right sweet